Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, and welcome to our coverage of the first day of the Air Force Association's Air Space Cyber Conference and Trade Show this year in person outside Washington, D.C. This episode is also our monthly report on Joint All-Domain Command and Control, which is sponsored by L3 Harris. Later in the program, key takeaways from day one of this three-day conference. But first, it's my honor to welcome United States Air Force Lieutenant General Q Hynote, the Deputy Chief of Staff for Strategy, Integration, and Requirements, charged with developing the service's long-range strategy. Before we get started, Bell sponsors our daily podcast, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage, Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall, Fincantieri Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy, and General Motors Defense sponsors our technology coverage. Sir, a real honor and pleasure. Thanks very much. I've been looking forward to this conversation uh, for uh, some time. And I wanted to start off with the threat, right? We heard from Secretary uh, Kendall, we heard from you this morning in the media briefing that we're really out of time, um, that all the warnings, you know, you've been one of these people who have been tracking these developments for actually a decade or so. Um, and now we're sort of here and we're, we're out of time. What are some of the specific things or the aggregate that our adversaries are doing from an air power perspective that is so vexing for you? Sure. Thanks, Vago. It's so good to be with you again and here at the uh, Air and Space Conference. Uh, we, as I said this morning when we had an opportunity to, uh, to talk, I think this is the most consequential of these conferences that I've ever been to. And it's because of what you just brought up. And it's the idea that China has in many ways caught up. This is not a tomorrow problem. This is a today problem. The evidence is clear on this. So for many years, we documented that we were losing war games set into the future. And certainly, I was one of the people that talked about that. Um, my friend Chris Bros has a great book out about this. And in his opening chapter, he talks about how it was when they found out over in Congress what it was like that we had lost all these war games. But those were set years into the future. What is changing now is that China, as the Secretary just said, is accelerating its pace of modernization. And because of that, we are seeing that instead of future conflicts being in question, we're actually doing exercises that are set in tonight's world with tonight's airmen and tonight's weapons against what we would expect to face. And in certain scenarios, not in every case, but in certain scenarios, they're at parity. This is not something that we can punt until the future. It's now, here today. So uh, the, the Secretary just talked about some of those great investments that they've been making. And sometimes you just have to respect your opponent, right? And you just say, they did a good job. They studied us for years. They wrote about us. There are some great doctrinal documents that China has right. published about us. And they understand us in a way that, frankly, maybe we don't quite understand them. And that's on us to fix, right? I remember Tom Earhart years ago saying that, that their assessment of our capability is better than our assessment of so, our capability in some respects. So isn't that interesting that they would be so fascinated with what we were doing? And I think that is a testament to how well we built up military power through the Cold War. And we were able to kind of ride, as the Secretary just said, for 30 years. Well, that time is over. And what is going on? Well, they've invested in what they call their anti-access area denial technologies. These would be their defenses. They have good defenses. They have missiles, missiles that are accurate 
that can hit what they're aiming at. You know, we just uh, saw uh, not that long ago in Iraq what it was like when Iran shot missiles at one of our bases. Now, they hit, they were pretty accurate, but they're nothing like the accuracy of what China has invested in. And so we see good missile technologies. We see advanced aircraft that they're fielding. You heard the secretary talk about the J-20. J-20 is a good aircraft. Uh, you know, I'm, I am very happy that, that our industry partners are building better aircraft, but there's going to be a lot of those J-20s. And so you have to respect the types of investment that China has put into their uh, air superiority, into being able to project air power, and to defend close to their shores. And of course, one of the big differences is as we are going to project power close to China, why do we have to do that? Because we have friends close to China. We, we, we want to protect our friends close to China. As we do that, as we get closer to the Chinese coast, the balance of military capabilities swings more and more in favor of China. This is why we say it's a now problem. It's a tonight problem, not a tomorrow or a future problem. And uh, as you're theorizing, so right, each of the military services faces a challenge and has, has been criticized by lawmakers, right, where you guys go up with those pitches and they say, well, we don't, we're not really convinced or your story keeps changing. Your stories keep changing because the capabilities are changing and you're trying to figure out novel intellectual ways of solving this, right, uh, before you ask for the big investment changes, although the secretary talked about how the palm changes he's made, he didn't, he's not going to detail those. But from your standpoint, what does this what it, what's the kind of aerospace power we need for the future, sure. given the nature of the threat? And how do you accelerate that, right, reasonably? Because even when you talked about NGAD, the next generation air, uh, air dominance system, you said that it, you, you can accelerate that by months, not necessarily years, given the complexity of the program. Yeah. So, so what does that air and space power need to look like? How do we need to think about it in order for it to inform the kind of decisions we need to make? Sure. Well, I'll answer that kind of in two different ways because I think it is important. And we live in a, uh, a time when the character of war is changing. So the first way I'll answer that is one of the reasons why all the services are having such a difficult time talking about their contribution to the joint fight is because we've typically thought about that as domains, the air domain, the maritime domain, the land domain, and such. What we increasingly find, and we see this in our war games and our modeling and simulation, is you're increasingly agnostic about where the military power comes from. It could come from the air, it could come from space, it could come from under the sea, and all of different places. But what you've got to be able to do is fight as a team, as the Secretary just said, one team, one fight. This is why you've seen this idea of JADC2, Joint All Domain Command and Control, be such a dominant uh, point of, uh, of discussion is because we don't see a way to win without it being joint, all domain, without it all coming together to the point where you're not sure where the air domain starts or stops and the land domain starts and, and the maritime domain will bleed into the space domain, the cyber domain permeates everything that we're doing. So one of the ways of answering your question is if you're trying to talk about military power as like air power or sea power, that's pretty hard right now because none of it works in isolation. Now, the second aspect of this, and you heard the secretary talk about this, is I don't see how the joint force wins without some level of control in space and some level of control in the air. What do I mean by that? So clearly we have space capabilities that we can't lose and expect to be able to fight uh, well. 
And Which your adversary is trying to deny you of. So no country in the world is exercising its anti-space forces like China is right now. And we always talk about, you know, we don't want to weaponize space. That choice is, is we're way beyond that choice right now. We, we, space is weaponized, and if we don't do anything, China will weaponize it, and they will be able to deny our capabilities. The whole reason why we have a space force is to stop them, is to be able to exert some level of control in space, and certainly from the air point of view, we see air superiority as, as something that we have to still be able to do. Again, we're projecting power close to China's shore because that's where Japan lies, that's where Taiwan lies, that's where the Philippines lie. And so we have to be able to project that power close in. So as we see our investments paying off into the future, it's all about the ability to control the air and space and use it on behalf of the overall effort, which is joint and it's all domain. So that's how I'll answer your question. It's, uh, it's, it's hard to just separate out right. air power or space power. Um, and, and obviously uh, the J7 Stu Munch is working on all of these problems and how to uh, integrate them and right. made a lot of uh, progress. Unfortunately, the problem you guys have is that it's all highly classified. Well, so, so absolutely. But uh, as you say, the J7 is pushing forward uh, some key capabilities. I will tell you behind the scenes, they're making pretty good progress. Uh, you, do you will, think so? I absolutely think so. In fact, uh, we've had some pretty unexpected, in a good way, results recently. I'll let him talk about that when he's ready and the chairman is ready. But, uh, but I'll tell you, behind the scenes, we ought to keep pushing that effort forward. There's some real goodness that is happening there. Um, you know, we've uh, talked about speed. I know that this is uh, something, you know, that I felt like as a commentator and reporter, a little bit of a broken record on this, that we have to move faster. And there are a lot of historical examples mm -hmm. of, of moving quickly. And obviously, everybody now does have that, uh, right? I mean, there's nothing like the blade on the back of your neck to sort of uh, com right. compel you to, to move faster, even if some, of, uh, some folks like you have been moving faster uh, longer. Uh, maybe. What's the key to speed? What is our window? I remember General McConville last year told me that he thought the window was two years. You know, we heard from uh, Admiral Davidson before he left that it was six years uh, where we'll have an advantage over China to deter over Taiwan. But I thought that what Jim McConville was interesting about was in order for us to maintain that deterrent edge, we have to move a lot more quickly than people think. From your standpoint, what is that window uh, sure. that we have? And how do we get through that window? And how much of this is about new things rather than completely rethinking the problem and not doing stuff r rather than doing stuff? No, very good questions all. And I'll start uh, answering the question with what Secretary Kendall was just saying about time. So we're out of time. So as far as our window for initiating change, we're at the end of it. There's no more margin here. Uh, he also said that we moving fast is important, but moving fast in the right direction is even more important, right? You don't want to move fast in the wrong direction. So one of the things that he has done coming into the, uh, the department over the last several months has been to ask the tough questions. You heard him talk about some of those tough questions. And he's asking us the questions to ensure that he feels like we're moving in the right direction as we move fast. So your question on time frame. So obviously we don't know when we might get in a crisis that would lead to a conflict with a peer competitor. We certainly hope we never do. And, uh, and that's why it's so important that we change now. Because if we don't change now, the risk that we're going to run is the risk that deterrence fails. It means that we're 
we're going to get into a conflict. We won't have good options for the president when that happens. And when that happens, we'll end up losing or backing down and allowing a fait accompli to happen. All of those things are on the table right now. So the, the, the most important time frame is literally this year, is literally getting after it right now so that we can begin to turn that trend and the deterrence equation continues to hold over this next five-year period, six-year period. Because I do think we are at a, a place where the rise of China and the, uh, the, the, the desires of the United States are going to come into conflict. Now, hopefully that doesn't mean armed conflict. Hopefully that just means we work it out the way great powers work it out. But if we can't, and what, I can, what I'm concerned about, what you, you just heard Secretary Kendall talk about was, if deterrence breaks down, we're in trouble. Um, that's why it's so important to change now, because you've got to keep that deterrence equation rolling. So this is why I think you heard him say and talking about modernization of the nuclear triad. Uh, the fielding of an advanced bomber, the fielding of next generation capabilities in the fighter world, uh, better munitions, um, being able to use all of the tools in your toolbox by connecting them together through the advanced battle management system, uh, being able to, uh, to have tanker, a tanker fleet that's modern and able to force extend as you need to, and, uh, and the ability to weave it all together. I, that's the special sauce that we're going to try to bring, and we've got to work in all of those areas. Um, one of the challenges, though, has been, um, right, you've been, uh, your uh, comments have been construed as critical of F-35, for, for example. Uh, it, but I, I think in the right context, right, it, the, the question is the kind of capabilities over, t it's not that it's not an important platform, but you need rangier uh, systems with higher payload, for example. That drives us, for example, to yes. NGAD, uh, which, which uh, what, how do we need, and, and Secretary Kendall gave a great example where in China, nobody is saying don't retire J-10s, uh, you know, and shut my base in order to get more J-20s, right? Uh, whereas, unfortunately, that's the nature of the conversation. You've been having these and, yes. and been the lightning rod for some members of, of Congress course. who've come after you uh, on, on this. How do, are you making any progress and are there different ways of engaging lawmakers to get them to go along with this? Because, you know, we see an enormous amount of money still going into legacy platforms. Mm -hmm. We saw that with a legacy, relevant, irrelevant, I think, is Kath Hicks's, uh, Dr. Hicks's yes, new term, course. right? Of course. Right. But um, yes. how, do we, how do we bring Congress along? Because the incremental, it's great to have more money, but if the money is not spent on the right sure. things, it's actually counterproductive. It is. And that's a, first of all, there's several different questions in there. I'll start with, you know, the F-35 is a good thing to talk about because it illustrates so many of things here. First of all, I'm not anti-F-35. Certainly no one in the Air Force is. we got to get that airplane to work. That's why we're hard on it. We're demanding. We have to be a demanding customer because our future warfighter is going to fly in that platform. And it better be the right platform. That's why we've been so uh, consistent with our message that it has to be affordable, it has to be effective, and it has to be sustainable. And I think we're going to get there. But if we don't, we'll have to do other things, and that'll be okay. We'll move forward in other ways. That being said, the, what we're really talking about here is being able to change and be able to push forward what it is our warfighters have to be able to do. And there's lots of different ways that we, uh, that we can do that. Um, the key is right now is we have to be able to, to talk with our stakeholders about it. You asked about Congress, and Congress, of course, is a key stakeholder in this equation. 
What is different now? So I think there's a couple of things that are different now. I'll start with the threat. Secretary Kendall talked about he's going to be taking his classified briefing at the, at the same time our secretary, uh, Secretary Austin, has been taking around uh, data that shows where China is vis-a-vis -vis the United States. And, and the trends have not changed the way that we hoped the trends would change after the last national defense strategy was released. It, it, they haven't changed, and there's consequence to that. And that consequence is many areas China has caught up. So the threat is different, and many in Congress are listening to that. And there seems to be a consensus about the direction of the Chinese regime and that it will rise in a way that has real consequences for the American people. The second thing that has changed is more and more members of Congress are being vocal about the fact that we need to change, that, and, and sometimes that's going to hurt. A great example was the Future of Defense Task Force that Chairman Smith uh, initiated last year in the House Armed Services Committee. I've talked with, well, we actually had a chance to go talk with them for several hours a couple of different times. Many of the members who served on that bipartisan committee were of one voice when they said, it's really difficult for us to change the way we need to if we cling to these irrelevant systems. So we've got people on the inside who are now talking about releasing reports in a bipartisan way, and that's different, and, and that's good. And so what we've got to be able to do is, is to increase the momentum that they have started. And you heard Secretary Kendall talk about how, you know, politics is local, and that's okay. That's our system. We certainly wouldn't want it to be any other way. But local politics can't be the reason why we lose to China. And so we have to be able to do something different and come to a consensus. I think that's why this conference is so important, because we are speaking directly to some of our audiences out in, in Congress and OMB, inside the Department of Defense, and we're, we're asking for their help in changing so we can meet the threat. Um, when you look at, you know, everything has to be a cost imposition strategy. If you look at what the Chinese have brilliantly done through sustained investment in relatively low cost, long range systems that are area denial or precision strike, where you have waves of munitions that are going to come at any fixed base that we have anywhere mm -hmm. in the world, and indeed even pursue moving targets like aircraft carriers, and then combine that with a cyber strike that gets the carrier to not move, right. it's even, even they more. They would call that their assassin mace strategy, right? You just base, you right. did a very good job just then of summarizing one of the strategies that they have written about in their doctrine. Right. This isn't a secret. No. They've invested in this, and this is in fact what they're going to do. So what, but if you were a Martian who fell to earth uh -huh. and looked at what we were doing, you would not see all that much difference no. uh, publicly, unfortunately. And deterrence is about your adversary not miscalculating, yes. right? And that's, I think, why this urgency yes. is, if I'm the adversary looking at us, at some right. point the adversary will conclude, hey, wait a minute, these guys are, you know, empty. The yes. threats are all empty. That's right. What are some of the things that we need to do and how do we need to think differently at yes. speed to start imposing cost on the adversary? What the Army's doing on long-range strike mm -hmm. is very laudable, mm -hmm. but the fact is it's not, it's a very expensive solution to the problem, right? So how do we need to think about how we project force in order to start very rapidly changing that calculus, a lot of it which would rely on the Air Force. So I, very good and insightful uh, line of questioning because that's really what it all comes down to. We had a very uh, well thought out strategy in the 2018 National Defense Strategy. People on both sides of the aisle said so. 
we didn't implement it. And we certainly didn't implement it to the way that we needed to, to the, you know, the, the, the speed that we needed to, to make it real, to reverse those trends. So we've got to implement this next strategy. There's no choice about that. What are we going to do about implementation? Well, so there's some things we can do that are pretty straightforward. We can have more bases. We can have more infrastructure. We can pre-position equipment and supplies, and we can practice being able to, to operate off of these Astur type of air fields and fixed infrastructure. And then we can move using technology for more flexible logistics and being able to take off of increasingly smaller runways and maybe even being independent of runways altogether. Inside the threat, that's going to really complicate what it is they do. It's cost imposing for them. And so as we look forward, we see also that this retooled, reinvented bomber force creates more capacity of fires that they have to deal with from global ranges. So in many cases, you're taking advantage of different parts of their system. Uh, they, they think they're going to attack us systemically. We're thinking about doing it in a way that negates that systemic attack with our systems. So there's very much a, uh, a back and forth that's associated with this. But overall, what we see is we're going to use different tactics, different techniques, and we're going to fold in the technologies that we need to do something that is really hard for them to deal with, and that's spread out. We're going to spread out to the point where they're not going to be able to knock us out with a single punch. And when we, we do that, we'll be able to come together at the right place and time using Joint All Domain Command and Control and uh, be able to stop whatever they're doing. Um, surprise is integral in moments like this. I always like the Battle of Drawback Sound because the Germans uh, did not think this 1895 fortress uh, was going to sink one of their heavy cruisers as they were going to in invade Oslo, and they didn't know anything about the 1895 torpedo battery either. <laughs> that was in the basement that uh, Berger Ericsson sort of unleashed on them. Mm. Um, and in the end, uh, just like the Japanese didn't expect to be bombed from an aircraft carrier by B-25 bombers led by Jimmy Doolittle yes. and, and, and the Raiders, do, are you convinced that we're thinking enough out of the box mm -hmm. and that we have as good of an idea on how they're likely to fight? Uh, because I think Jim Stavridis's uh, book was an interesting one yes. where it was like, wow, we didn't think they were going right. to do all of that, right? right? As the guy who's thinking about right. the both being devious and also what the other guy might be thinking, are you comfortable that we're thinking enough out of the box on either end of that it's equation? It's a great question, Vago. Um, I'll answer the first part or the last part. Uh, no, I'm not comfortable that we're thinking about everything. I will tell you I'm more comfortable than I was several years ago. There are a couple of reasons for that. One is we're all concentrating on the problem. We've been able to recruit some of our young officers who are really innovative and talented to be able to play in these war games and be able to kind of use some of their creativity to go against us and to understand what it would be like. We have good red teams these days, and chief among them is the uh, the Secretary of Defense's red team doing great work for us. And just the other day, the red team released uh, something uh, that, that several of us got a chance to read, which was a very novel way of China being able to use its power in ways we weren't expecting. And that kind of thinking I, it will help us. It'll make us stronger and it will uh, decrease the uh, chance of surprise. I think I'll close it with, 
in great power war, there's going to be surprises uh, on both sides. Right. And our hope would be is that our surprises are more effective than theirs. Right. And, uh, and, that, and we certainly are going to try to make that true. Um, from an air power question, um, NGAD obviously is the big thing. There are li limitations. Obviously, the secretary discussed the program, the prototyping program uh, that was born in 2016. Uh, that was one of the things that Dr. Roper was talking about in That's terms right. of having come together quickly, and obviously a lot of very important mm -hmm. lessons being learned from that, uh, just as we, we did on the B-21 program going into it. Um, let me ask you a broad question about not just NGAD, uh, but also unmanned. Um, in a highly emissions contested environment yes. um, where you are at MCON Alpha and, and could be kinetic effects that actually disrupt communications, how do we need to think about a command and control grid? John Hyten sort of hinted at this, that actually if you're on the grid for any, first the grid may not be there, B, when it's there, it actually becomes a targeting node for them. Mm -hmm. So you being on it too long is problematic. So you gotta get on, get what you have and get off. Right. Are we, are you comfortable intellectually we're at the right point? Because NGAD can actually, I'm not going to say it's not going to be as relevant, but it could be really effectively negated if you don't have any of that connectivity at mm. the end. I mean, are you comfortable with where we are in the electromagnetic spectrum? Again, never comfortable. I, I, I am convinced that we are thinking about it in ways that are effective. And one of the things that, that I think is evidence to that is, uh, is the way we're thinking about AI-enabled autonomy and being able to use human-machine teaming in ways that even if you were cut off for periods of time from the collective understanding about what is going on, there would be the ability for small pockets of military power, whatever they are, to come together and, and create fractal nodes. Basically, you're, you're a subset of the overall system. One of the problems that we have today is if you cut off our unmanned aircraft, they're useless. Uh, as uh, we heard uh, United CEO Scott Kirby talk about, the, the, the way that we think about unmanned aircraft today is there has to be a constant communication between the flight controls and somebody on the ground. That's not going to be the way we're going to think about it in the future. There's going to be uh, the ability to fly for hours, uh, long hours, uh, it, and not have to be associated or communicating with the overall cloud. Maybe there's a subcloud or, or a small pocket of military power. And if we can fight that way, we're going to keep on fighting through the disruptions that we know are going to come. Sometimes we call that fighting fractured, uh, being able to fight fractured. Our design parameters as we're going into ABMS have the requirement to be able to fight fractured. Um, you mentioned ABMS. You mentioned uh, JADC2 at the very top. Obviously, foundational um, folks, uh, when uh, General Dave Goldfein first breached it, were like, hey, wait a minute, this is a real big uh, idea. Uh, and, and why certain folks thought that uh, he would have made a great chairman. No criticism to Mark Milley at all uh, and, and the job that he's doing. Um, but Secretary Kendall also sort of has raised, and you discussed candidly with the reporters earlier today, the, the, how that's evolving. You've also had to answer a lot of questions up on the Hill on this right. uh, question. Why, Q, why does this keep changing right. uh, all, all the time? How do we need to think about what this is? Because the Navy is sort of off doing its own thing. You and the Army are mm. working more closely together on it. If, if we're going to no crap do this, mm. 
given the complexity of it, given the technological challenges of it, and given how much effort the adversary is putting into disrupting it, right. we should get sort of our crap together, right? We what, what, where, where is the thinking and where is this going to go? Is this hit the reset button? What, where, where are we in this continuum of thinking? No, it's a great point. And what I think that we just have to accept is that we are a learning military. We know the concept that we want to achieve. The concept is, as I discussed earlier, all domain operations, being able to come together in every domain so that you are agnostic about if that effect came from an aircraft or a submarine or, or whatever. That's the pole star. How you get to the pole star is still being worked out. We are still learning our way to that, uh, to that um, objective. Now, some of that will be experimentation, and mainly in the risk reduction category. But I do think that experimenting for experimenting's sake, as the Secretary just said, is not where we need to go. We need to be thinking about real capability. And one of the things that he has forced us to do is to be able to be very uh, detailed about what we're asking for. Now, uh, there, as you can probably tell, there's, you have a concept and then you have a requirement to be detailed. Those are things we're just going to have to learn together and, and grow into together. Now, I feel very strongly that one of the first things we're going to see is this idea of an edge network. It's very close to what I was just talking about with the ability to fight fractured. But it's, it's the idea that the edge components, so the sensors that are either flying or floating uh, in the local area, the, uh, the possible effectors and even command and control that would be in between those, they have to be connected. Even if you can't talk back to Hickam, Hawaii, or Washington, D.C., because I don't think you're going to be able to talk to Hickam, Hawaii, or, or Washington, D.C. So this idea of the edge network is very likely to be where we're able to inject the, you know, something that a warfighter can use. We're very excited about some of the joint opportunities that we have. So you mentioned the Army's uh, Project Convergence. The, the Navy has something they call Project Overmatch, uh, and they're very akin to our ABMS capabilities. I was in Aberdeen, uh, Pennsylvania, not that long ago, or Aberdeen, Maryland, uh, not that long ago with all three of the chiefs, uh, the, the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force. They briefed what they were shooting for. There was very little difference between the three briefs. So it's clear that we're all learning our way to this together. Uh, that now we all have a slightly different idea about how to make it reality. You know, most of us in the Air Force are partial to aircraft being nodes in the network. You could see that, that folks on other parts, uh, you know, land power advocates would be every soldier's a node. And of course, if you're a maritime advocate, you have to have every surface combatant be a node and all that. I, I get that, and I think that's normal and natural. But there was not very much difference, if any, when it came to the overall objective. And I remember thinking after the third brief, it was actually the CNO, uh, Admiral Gilday, who, who gave the third brief, and I remember thinking to myself, wow, I think we're aligned. I know that we'll talk about it in different ways and, and Congress will bring us up and they'll have us brief differently than the Army will and all that because the money has to be accounted for some way. But I was just struck by the fact that there was no difference in what we were all trying to do. Now, does that allow for some, uh, some merging of the programs or merging of the efforts? It probably does. And we're going to have to see where that makes sense as we go forward. Um, two questions before sure. you get the hook. Uh, one is, what are the big problems you need help 
with? If you were going to ask industry or sure. allies and partners, what do you want them to be thinking about and coming to you? Because you've said your door is open to anybody who needs help you know, in defining what the problem is, right? You're happy to tell them what the problem is. Of course, are. of course, no, I, and and we we actually benefit quite a bit from great relationships with our industry partners. We uh, we often go through some of the associations to help us do, do wide broadcast of what we're working on and what our problems are. We'll continue to do that. This is, of course, one of those times where we get a chance to really communicate with our industry partners. What we, uh, well, I'll, I'll just start off with a few. So um, at the moment, we are a platform-centric Air Force. All of our platforms have, in some ways, proprietary gear that is not all that compatible with either talking to the other platforms and not necessarily upgradable in ways that make it modular. Uh, we would like to be able to literally take a, uh, take a component out and put a component in and they would be standard. In many ways, we would get a different platform because of what we plugged in and what we took off. So, uh, so some sort of modular open architecture is a key part. I don't know what the profit model looks like for that. I wish we could solve that because if we can't solve it, we're going to continue to get stovepiped in these platforms and that's not good for tomorrow's warfighter. And so so we've got to figure out how the profit model works so that we can benefit from the intellectual property that these, uh, in, that these industry partners bring, but also continue with the competition for making the platform better and better and better. So open architecture, modular solutions, certainly communications, and being able to be very flexible with communications and giving us lots of different opportunities for, for uh, uh, taking a piece of information from one part and, and putting it into the right place. Uh, I think we're going to ask for help with ABMS, and I think we're going to ask for it in a very formal way. We'll see how that goes. Uh, but I think we're going to ask for industry's help in the architecture piece of ABMS. And that's okay. I'm, I'm interested in hearing what they have to say. They may have really good ideas on how to do this. And I know there are some industry partners who have thought about it pretty deeply. Um, the uh, <coughs> There are, of course, new technologies that are military uh, kind of created technologies, we, we, uh, stealth technologies, uh, you know, counter-infrared technology is a good example. These are technologies gonna that are going to continue to be developed kind of inside of military circles. Uh, DOD will lead these. But at the same time, there's all of these technologies, artificial intelligence is a good example, uh, machine learning and, and things where the commercial sector and the academia is really the, the leaders in this. And, Bringing all that together is another place where we could really use help with our industry partners. How do we merge the best of what we're seeing in, in the commercial sector and academia with the latest research and the military-specific technologies that we're developing in, in secret areas like Palmdale, as the, as the Secretary just talked about? Right. If we can bring those together, we have power. And there's no country in the world that can do it like we can with our industry partners. Um, last uh, speed uh, qu question. Right. When you were talking about NGAD, you said, look, it's months we can speed things, not years. But actually, if you look at World War II, we were able to mm -hmm. dramatically accelerate weapons. Yes. I mean, I think if, if people took a moment to think the P-51 went from a Royal Air Force requirement to a flying airplane in like 170 days, people would be like, what? That's, that's crazy. How much of this is what not to do? 
we're too bureaucratic from our own good. I'm not going to peel no. off the raw wound from the Air Force uh, software chief uh, quitting. How much of this is what not to do? Yes. And actually, does that unchain a lot more speed? So we think so. Uh, but we wouldn't necessarily know yet since we're still fighting the, the bureaucracy and the bureaucratic forces. Certainly one of the things that Chief of Staff General Brown uh, wanted us to do when he came in, he gave us direction to begin taking on those bureaucratic processes and forces. And we have mixed success with that. Uh, as you can imagine, changing the Pentagon is really, really hard. And it's because of the diversity of interests that are, uh, that are all brought together in a place like the Pentagon. And as you see those interests come together, in many cases you have frictions. And we certainly think that the frictions of the bureaucracy are slowing down the gears of progress and so what we're trying to do is figure out where the goodness lies in that because it's not all bad I mean it's not bad to get somebody's point of view what is bad is when you're struggling to get consensus because you feel like you can't go on without consensus that's not something and frankly all of our leaders have told us they don't want that they, they don't want weak consensus as a substitute for real sharp choices. We want to bring the sharp choices to the, uh, to the leaders and they'll make the choices. We have done that in this last uh, POM cycle. We made some sharp choices, you know, we actually, you know, put some sharp options out there and our leaders took the, you know, made decisions. Uh, and they'll be accountable for those decisions as we go forward. I think that's goodness. So we have some success in taking on the bureaucracy. I am also very aware of how hard that is and how, how much energy you have to expend to take on the bureaucracy. Because I can tell you I have experience in that and there are days when I'm pretty frustrated with it. Uh, and I know that our leaders are too. But there, the, I mean, the easiest way to, to let the bureaucracy win is to stop pushing back against it. We're going to keep pushing. We're going to keep trying to speed things up. And I think you see some points of light. A great example would be middle tier acquisition. That is something that the Congress gave us so that we could move faster. We've used, in fact, the Air Force has used middle tier uh, acquisition in ways that no one else has yet. We've taken that, uh, that, that. Um, flexibility that was given to us in the law and applied it and frankly we're getting decent results with it and we're learning along the way and we'll do better in the future and so so there are some points of light I would be uh, I, I would be too optimistic if I said the bureaucracy doesn't win some of those and so of course it does and we're going to keep fighting. Uh, General High Note, absolute pleasure. Uh, what a great way to start AFA for what I believe uh, you're absolutely right is a very consequential uh, AFA show. Sir, thanks very much. Oh, Best of luck you. over the coming days, so months, and years. Yes, thank you, uh, Vago. I so appreciate being with you and what you do for, for us in the, in the wider defense conversation. And joining us now is retired United States Air Force Lieutenant General Dave Deptula, who is the Dean of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies. Uh, Dave, always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Uh, obviously a big day, uh, you know, cue high note uh, at the top of the show, uh, talking about the future strategy of the United States Air Force. Great addresses today by uh, Secretary Kendall, the uh, 26th Secretary of the Air Force, as well as C.Q. Brown, 22nd Chief of Staff of the United States Air Force. Uh, you've been to a couple of these shows over the past uh, few decades. What did you hear that stood out uh, for you uh, today? Because there are a number of folks who are saying that we are at a real inflection point and that this is the right team to drive change forward in the United States Air Force, which has been a consistent message. What, what, what did you pick up uh, in listening to the two of them? Well, first, uh, Pago, thanks uh, for the opportunity to chat. Um, you, I just would tell you from the macro level, 
Um, there's a really good vibe uh, from all the people who are attending. There's an enormous attendance, which is probably not to be unexpected um, after the last year's event uh, being uh, virtual due to, uh, to COVID. And people um, are really interested in, uh, in being face-to-face -face and, 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 and getting the kind of interpersonal dynamics that only come from face-to-face -face meetings. Now, I, I would concur with the assessment that you've heard in the context of Secretary Kendall and uh, General Brown uh, being a great team. Um, I think it's very fortunate that we have a secretary who knows the Pentagon inside and out uh, and his familiarity on uh, Capitol Hill. Uh, and uh, I was impressed by his uh, presentation. Um, uh, I, I think it is uh, on uh, target in a couple of areas. Um, I'd offer you, I took away sort of three major points. The first one that, uh, you know, he uh, relayed to us when he was uh, being uh, 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 interrogated by Congress uh, <laughs> about what his top... That's what confirmation hearings have devolved yeah, into, yeah. interrogations. Yeah, but it was, what are your top three priorities? And his response was China, China, and China. Uh, and that indicates that he is willing uh, to turn up the heat on what clearly is a very significant threat. He mentioned the fact that China is, uh, you know, growing the capability to achieve uh, a first strike nuclear capability, which was very, very wor worrisome. Uh, and it, it is clear that he's going to drive the team toward taking actions uh, to be able to prepare uh, both the Air Force and the Space Force to deal with the China threat. Number two, is, is one that's near and dear to my heart. He said it in a little bit different way, but I'm gonna summarize using my language. And that is that the Department of the Air Force is the nation's indispensable force. In other words, that, what that means is that there's absolutely no joint force operation then, that can occur without some element of the Department of the Air Force being involved. Uh, and no other service can say that. Now, unfortunately, the Air Force is a geriatric force, and the infrastructure in the Space Force is approaching um, uh, that use of terminology. Uh, you know, in the Air Force, we've got fighters that are approaching an average age of 30 years old. The youngest B-52 is 59 years old. Um, we, we have trainers that are over 50 years old. Our tankers were built in the early 60s, and so on and so forth. Um, so uh, we need an increase in resources uh, because the Air Force, Department of the Air Force have been cut more than any other services in the last 30 years. Uh, and then the number three point that he made that I think was um, significant and uh, it's gonna be a challenge uh, in a couple of ways, uh, but that's it, the Department of the Air Force is gonna operate as one team, one fight. He's referring to both the service U.S. Air Force and the service U.S. Space Force. It's very important to recognize, while we now have a new service, U.S. Space Force, um, when it comes to organize, train, and equip, that's very important. But when it comes to employing forces, the way we achieve synergy is through integration, not segregation of efforts. Uh, that's true in the social world. It's true when it comes to the employment of the domains of air and space uh, as well. 
And let me ask you about the chief's uh, messages. That was a very powerful address he had as well, right? That he didn't believe in the impossible, but he also was trying to drive home that it's actually possible for us to lose this, right? Do not think that it's impossible that we will, uh, you know, always maintain our aerospace uh, supremacy. Uh, and talking about don't don't come and look to me or ask me for more money. Go ahead and drive these changes because they're absolutely necessary. I don't have to hold your hand. You as leaders, every leader has an obligation to empower uh, and hold accountable their folks. I mean, I thought it was a very powerful uh, address from that standpoint. But what are the elements of it that jumped out? Well, uh, I, you? you know, I, I would tell you again with uh, General Brown, um, uh, for our audience, um, I'll keep it simple, three major points. I think the first one is just an elaboration of what you said, and I would say it in a different way in that we need to change the culture of bureaucratic drag because there's way too much risk avoidance, and that he personally is very frustrated about that. Well, join the club, General Brown. Um, I've got uh, 34 years of frustration with uh, bureaucratic resistance to change uh, and people going along to get along. So uh, it was an impressive talk, uh, but I gotta tell you, um, we, we now need to see um, those words turned into action all right, in the context of people actually being empowered. Now, <clears throat> we're coming off of a, you know, just about a generation now where um, uh, the unfortunate uh, uh, firing of a former chief of staff and secretary of the Air Force simultaneously imposed uh, a perspective inside the military, not just the Air Force, of you better not speak truth to power because if power doesn't like it, you're going to get shot between the eyes. That's what Secretary Gates did to the men and women of the United States Air Force. Uh, and unfortunately, it, it um, overflowed to the rest of the service as well. Well, so that, you know, what General Brown's trying to do is, is, is come out of that paradigm uh, and get the Air Force back to where it was, uh, to where our founders were in terms of pushing the edge of the envelope and exploring, advocating, and articulating for new ideas. Now, not all the new ideas uh, are great ideas, but that's okay. What you want is sufficient new ideas generated, so there's about 10% of them that get uh, accepted. Um, and, uh, you know, and uh, we, we've got about 30 seconds left, but I wanted to get your take. Do you, General Brown had a hardness that does hearten to an older generation of Air Force leaders, doesn't it? I mean, he, he sounded a bit more uh, like Fogelman, like Horner, like Mike Lowe, who had that sort of Cold War generation hardness to them a little bit. I mean, am I, am I reading that message correctly? Urgency, focus? Well, yeah. Um, uh, Fago, I wouldn't call it hardness. Um, I'd call it determination, uh, and which takes me to my separate, second point. And it's one that is his theme, and that's accelerate, change, or lose. Uh, and he'd made the point that we're starting to see progress, and that's good. Um, but, you know, in terms of accelerate, change, or lose, you, they're, they're fun, you can only do so much um, with what you've been issued. And if that, in fact, we all know, because the Air Force did a study in 2018, that the requirements for the size, the capability, and the cap capacity of the United States Air Force is about 25% less than what it actually requires to meet the demands of the national security strategy. So at some point, you need to make the case for more resources. Uh, and, and the Air Force needs to do a better job of that.
And then the last one, the, the takeaway that he ended on, which I thought was a very good one, is the mission of the United States Air Force is to fly, fight, and win. Uh, air power, anytime, anywhere. And I think that's a good focus for people inside the Air Force to um, remember and drive their individual efforts toward ensuring that the collective Air Force is prepared to win the next conflict. Um, last question, 30 seconds. Uh, Frank Kendall made a great point that uh, nobody in the Chinese Air Force is saying, don't retire my J-10s well, you know, so I can buy more J-20s. Uh, at the end of the day, the biggest challenge on this is, is Congress. Uh, they both, uh, both Secretary Kendall and the Chief think that we're rounding a bend on that and that lawmakers will be understanding of that. From your standpoint, um, you know, Secretary Kendall said, I'm going to take the briefing book, the classified briefing book, and show people why we need to retire uh, older capability for, for new ones. Do you think that we're crossing a Rubicon? Because you talk to a lot of lawmakers and try to educate them about the way to make smart trade-offs, and eventually there's capability. You'd no longer need A-10s being one of them now that we're out of Afghanistan. Um, you're, you, un, un, the, the pragmatic answer is no. We're not about to change it around the corner until we change the... Uh, uh, the, the, the focus of um, our uh, congressional members. Uh, and, and this might surprise you, but the only way we're going to uh, round a bin is by instituting term limits. Because perhaps then, on the last term of a senator or representative's uh, time in Congress, might they shift from focusing on what's in the best interest of their <clears throat> representative area to what's in the best interest of the nation. Dave, always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. You bet. Have a great aerospace power counter day, Vago.